I'm so glad you're here today. I'm not sure what your week's been like, but it's and has been a rough week here at our community. Many of you know that Jolie Schultz died and left a huge hole in our community. I look up the balcony where the family used to sit just about every Sunday. And there's a bunch of empty chairs there today. And I guess I just would be remiss if I didn't thank you for being God's community for the Schultz family. Over and over again, they knew they were being prayed for. Over and over again, they felt God's strength in a really hard, a really long time. So I just want to do, I guess, say thank you from the bottom of my heart as we continue to grieve and care, serve our Lord, and love Frederick and Luke along with Gary very well. You know, we're back in the book of John, the Gospel of John. It's week 19 in our series. The Apostle John wrote his gospel late, literally right before he died. We know that John loved Jesus. He flat out was mesmerized with Jesus. This rugged fisherman just seemed to be drawn to well, the rabbi. And at the end of John's gospel, he wrote in chapter 20, verse 31, he said that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in Him, you will have life by the power of His name. John just simply wanted everyone to understand not only who Jesus was or the Messiah, but the power that He brought. He'd seen so many people scurrying around, so many people, well, dejected, and he had found life in Jesus. See, each week we watch Jesus and learn from Jesus. He's the Son of God, the Messiah, the King, the Savior. Jesus came to earth in order to light, to Jesus came to earth in order to offer life to the tired, to the weary, ones who scurry and ones who come up empty just like the folks that John saw. In John's gospel, we've seen in these first seven chapters, Jesus do some pretty amazing things. He offers to rescue the intellectual, the rebellious, and the religious. He makes statements like, I am the Messiah. I am the bread of life. I am the everlasting water. No one will ever find life without me. I will satisfy your thirst like nobody else. I will take care of the hunger that you have in your soul like nobody else. gives purpose to a group of aimless and confused disciples and builds their faith. He restores people who are physically and intellectually 
and emotionally and spiritually dead. He teaches actually like nobody else. In fact, if we're honest, we need Jesus today more than ever. You know, for the most part, the crowds have been enamored with Jesus for his first two years. Yet there was a group of people, oh, religious leaders, that hated Jesus, men who opposed him whenever they had the opportunity. You are not going to believe what happens today in our text. But before I have Josiah read, if you open your Bibles to John chapter 8, there is an asterisk or in parentheses a note attached that says something like this right above chapter 7 verse 53 and it goes on through chapter 8 verse 11. And in your Bibles it reads this. The most ancient Greek manuscripts do not include John chapter 7 verses 53 to chapter 8, verse 11. Just about every scholar I have read believes this portion of John wasn't part of John's original gospel. Yet, most scholars also believe beyond any doubt that this story is an authentic fragment of the apostolic tradition that describes an actual historical event from the life of of Jesus. This story is far more than a battleground for textual critics. There's nothing that's contained in this text that contradicts any of God's inspired writings and actually paints a marvelous picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, whose gracious humility, infinite wisdom, convicting speech, and tender forgiveness exemplify his life. We should be grateful to God for preserving this story. So we're going to dig in today and see what we can learn from Jesus. If you have your Bibles, you can follow us along as Josiah reads. If not, you can look up on the screen. But Josiah, would you read for us starting in John chapter 7, verse 53? Then the meeting broke up and everybody went home. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him, but Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer, so he stood up again and said, All right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, Neither do I. Go and sin no more. Let's pray. 
Father, once again, we just come before you, recognizing your authority in our lives, recognizing that you chose to invade our planet in order for us to see God, to see God clearly, to see how God loves people and forgives people and, well, judges people. Father, we need to be able to understand better how you respond to those that, well, in many cases are like us. We love you, Lord, and we just ask that you would open our eyes fresh today. We do pray for the other churches in the area. There's so many that are proclaiming your word today who are worshiping you. And we ask, dear Father, that you would build your kingdom in a very significant way in particular, we pray for Grace Point Church with Pastor John there. We also ask, Lord, that you would encourage those at New Hope with Pastor Gary and those at Redemption Church with Pastor Adam. Lord, they're all different audiences and all different people groups, and we would just ask, Lord, that you would glorify yourself today. We pray these things in your Son's name. Amen. The Pharisees felt like they needed to make their move. The band of Jesus followers was growing, and many of them even started to believe, actually to embrace his audacious claims. So these righteous hypocrites met. It took all night, but they had the perfect plan. They thought their plan was brilliant. They had to work out some details, of course, but they thought the plan was basically foolproof. Jesus had been a sly dog up to this point, but their plan would expose his char this charlatan and restore their leadership back among the crowds. So with great excitement, the scribes and the Pharisees paraded an adulteress through the crowds, and through this woman at the feet of Jesus. You can imagine the scene. The stir that caused on the temple grounds. Perhaps it was the clothing, or the lack of clothing. Maybe it was the reputation of this woman, and they all knew what she stood for, and that she would even be in this, well, holy place. So there was confusion. Everything got quiet, almost like a face-off at OK Corral. The most decorated of all the righteous robed people, the leader, he stepped forward. And with a loud, commanding voice, he said, Teacher, after all, he wanted to respect Jesus, at least a little bit. This woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says, The stoner, what do you say, Jesus? You could see the smirk forming. The plan was working perfectly. 
If Jesus said, yes, let's stone her, all of his followers would see Jesus as a hypocrite. Jesus talked much about love and forgiveness and was known for extending grace to others. He would also be in trouble with the Romans. For no one had authority to condemn anyone but Rome. So he would be breaking the Roman law. If Jesus said, no, don't stone her, he would be breaking the law of Moses and literally condoning adultery. This was the perfect setup. To submit to Roman law, Jesus would have to ignore the law of God. To honor God's law, Jesus would incur the wrath of Rome. But, and we've just heard the story, Jesus had a third response. One the righteous lynch mob didn't see coming. So after he was questioned, Jesus did something odd. He stooped to the ground, and he began to write in the dust. Well, the Pharisees saw right through this. They saw this as a delay tactic and demanded immediately that Jesus should answer them. Hmm. So Jesus did. He stood up and probably looked at the man who was questioning him. His eyes cut right to the soul. He said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. And then Jesus stopped. And he got back down on his knees and he started writing. To say that the religious leaders were stunned was absolutely an understatement. The Mosaic law clearly stated that the accuser would be the first one who tossed the first stone. But there was nothing about being sinless. Defeated, they started to leave one by one. Beginning with the oldest and the wisest. They felt outsmarted by Jesus again. Soon, the adulteress and Jesus were alone in the midst of the crowd. Jesus stood up. He looked around. And then he looked at this woman. And he said, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? I don't know if she looked up. I don't know if she was still groveling. I don't know if there were tears. I don't even know if she could hardly speak. But somehow she squeaked out, No, Lord, no one is here to accuse me. The silence was deafening. She knew that Jesus would speak. What would he say? And then these words. These 
words came from Jesus. I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. Scripture doesn't tell us, but my guess is she just laid there stunned. No one had ever treated her this way, much less any man or any teacher. You know what? There is so much to this story. But let's not miss out what just happened. First of all, Jesus is illustrating how God forgives sinners without violating His holiness. He is showing literally how God harmonizes mercy and justice. You see, we have heard over and over again, especially if you've been part of this church, that God is love. God cares. You've also heard that God is just. And sometimes mercy and justice or love and justice, they don't seem to go together well. But Jesus showed us. Jesus is God and shows us what God looks like. In fact, we understand God's justice and mercy because of Jesus. God poured out His wrath against sin on a crucified Jesus so He could pour out His grace and mercy on everyone who believes. In Romans chapter 3, verse 23 through verse 26, I'd like to read that to you. But just with a very quick background, the Apostle Paul here writes the letter to Rome. It's an amazing letter. It's a letter that's filled deep with doctrine. And for the first 11 chapters, Paul just pours out his heart and and creates a foundation and wants to make sure that everyone understands their standing before the Almighty God. And in chapter 3, starting in verse 23, Paul writes this, For Everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, in His grace, freely makes us right in His sight. He did this through Jesus Christ when He freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in the past. For he was looking ahead and included them in what he would do in this present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness. For he himself is fair and just, and he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. We spent some time in 1 Peter earlier last year. And Peter the apostle writes this in chapter 2, verse 24. He personally, Jesus personally, carried our sins on his body on the cross. 
so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. By His wounds, we have been healed. This is the whole message of Easter. A message that is so confusing at times. A message that we're going to be looking at in just a few weeks. Where the Sunday before the resurrection, Jesus is paraded almost as King and Messiah. In just a few short days, condemned to die on a cross. The enemy, I'm sure, so happy all the religious that wanted to get rid of him, just delighting in this, but not recognizing that it was God's ultimate plan. Back when this whole mess started, when Adam and Eve decided, you know what, my way is better. Well, their rebelliousness is called sin, and it separated them from God. God was not taken back. God knew exactly what he had to do. And he sent his son, Jesus. Because he's a loving God and he's a just God. And this comes together. And he sent his son, Jesus, to die. To be sacrificed. To spread his arms and watch the blood drip. And the life absolutely gets sucked out of him. Well, not because God is some gross God, but God is just. As much as he loves us, he also knows our debt needs to be paid. And that's what Paul was writing about. We've all sinned. We've all blown it. Everyone in this room, everyone on our planet. But God so loved our world. He sent Jesus to pay that debt. You know, some of you have known the Lord for a long time. And you know that Palm Sunday's coming, and you know that Good Friday's coming, and you know that Easter's coming. You say, oh man, if we can get through Christmas and we can get through Easter, let's, let's, you know, let's move on. You know, I, I hope every one of us See what Jesus did again in fresh new eyes. Recognize God's great love, but God's great passion to make things right and just. And so we are the ones who put our faith and trust in Him that are able to, oh, experience life. See, Christ's sacrificial death paid the debt for our sin while graciously extending the gift of life to all who believe. You know, I'm not sure if you read all those worship words this morning. If your heart was just open as we worshiped and, and shared back and sang back to God. But I loved it this morning. I love, and it's not like I don't like it every morning, but, but this morning, it was so full. The psalmist writes in Psalm 85, verse 10, unbelievable text. He says this, In Him, in the Messiah, in Jesus, literally, 
loving kindness and truth or love and justice have met together. And the next line, righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Whoa. Only one person could do that. And that's Jesus. And as we come to this season, as we celebrate, which is an odd thing, but celebrate our King and His love for us, we'll see on Good Friday how righteousness and love have kissed each other. All through redemptive history, all of our um, all who were forgiven and given eternal life had the future sacrifice of Jesus, the Son of God, applied to their sins. Here's another thing that just jumped out at me. But forgiveness always precedes the commandment to sin no more. You see, legalism actually mixes up the order. Legalism says this, and religion says this. Why don't you shape up? Why don't you get your act together? All right? Do that first, and then you'll be forgiven. You know, Jesus Christ brought a different message. And he extended this message to wherever he went. But those truly forgiven have the greatest motivation not to sin, not to hurt their Savior. So many of you remember the story of Luke chapter 7. And in Luke chapter 7, Jesus was invited over to a Pharisee's home for dinner. And during that time, uh, as was the Eastern culture, that they were all uh, sitting down around the table, and all of a sudden, well, another woman, a, a woman of, well, poor reputation again comes bursting into this household, this Pharisee's house, and she's weeping and she's crying and she carries with her a flask and it's probably worth a year's wages. And she falls down at Jesus' feet and her tears are just pouring down and cleaning them off and she's just overwhelmed with Jesus. And she pours this flask over his head. Well, some of the people in that room were pretty indignant. Certainly the Pharisee and even the disciples saying, What are you doing? Do you realize Jesus sat there? Jesus embraced her. She had to have met Jesus before. This wasn't the first meeting for Jesus, but she was so overwhelmed by how Jesus received her loved her, that she said, I love you, Lord. And it was an amazing thing. And, and, and then Jesus just told a quick parable because everyone was kind of sitting there like this, you know, and kind of looking down. And, and Jesus just said, hey, I just, just want to ask a question. There's some dude that owes, well, $5 million. Another dude owes 50 bucks. And those debts, are taken care of. Who, who do you think is going to love the person who redeemed or, or, or who justified their debt? 
Well, the Pharisee says, well, the five million dude. You, you know, I mean, who's going to, well, forgive that kind of debt? And Jesus said, you're right. You know, you think you haven't sinned much. You have. But this lady, oh, she knew she had sinned. She knew that she was separated. She knew that she needed a Savior. And somehow she responded, and this is how she responds. You see, when you're forgiven, oh, things look different. Now, I have no reason, and I have no backing to say this next statement, but I'd like you to put it in the back of your mind. We're not sure when John chapter 8 came. Because again, it was a story. It's not necessarily in chronological order. But what happened if John chapter 8 was Mary? And you all remember the story of Mary, Mary and Martha. And that John chapter 8 happened before Luke chapter 7. And the woman that came in was Mary. And she was also the Mary of Luke chapter 10. You know, I don't know in the story, it doesn't matter if it is, but it kind of fits to me. Where maybe this lady, wow, met Jesus on this dusty floor. Absolutely had her life transformed. And just a little later, she went and got everything she had and poured it on the Savior. You see, Jesus came to save and to forgive sinners. And when we experience this salvation, our gratitude wants us to go and sin no more. Let me say this. Some people are bothered with this text because it seems like Jesus is rather casual toward sin. Well, let me actually share with you. He loves sinners, but he was never casual towards sin. Absolutely cost him his life. But he knew it was a setup. And we're not going to go into a lot of detail, but if this woman gets caught in the actual act, that's a little fishy, just so you know. Secondly, the law is really clear that the woman is, the only, or is not the only one who gets stoned or killed. It's the woman and the man. There's just a woman here. And lastly, really, Jesus wouldn't have been the one they would have brought this woman to. They, they wouldn't. There's a whole different situation where you bring them to the priest and there's different ways to do this. But Jesus knew immediately that this was a setup. But let me also tell you this. Jesus also knew she sinned. She did. She did. And Jesus' verdict, neither do I condemn, was not rendered as a simple acquittal. Just so you know. The verdict was in fact a strict charge for her to live from this point on very differently. Literally, no more adultery. If I could even retranslate this, I would say it's something like this. Go in the power of Jesus. It's in the middle, in the passive voice. 
But I want you to know that you're going to go, you're going to live differently. It's not going to be in your own strength. It's going to be in God's strength. And don't sin like this anymore. This is not going to be part of your life. We say, Rick, well, where did she come to faith? You know, aren't you building a... You know, I don't know. But I know that she was a different person. We don't have all the details. But the way that Jesus responded to me feels like she responded to him before. You see, the liberating work of Jesus does not ever mean the excusing of sin. True encounters with Jesus always means transformation of life, the turning toward God and the coming away from sin. You'll hear this often if you're here at our church. The gospel is come as you are. But the gospel is also you can't stay where you are. Sinners are offered the opportunity to start a new life. They are redeemed. But true redemption changes you from the inside out. Sin was never treated lightly by Jesus. You know, the last thing I'd like to focus on is that the religious core and Jesus differ on how they see and treat sinners. Whoa. This one really hit me. Because if I'm honest, although we are all sinners, Could I just go to the next slide, please? Thank you. Although we are all sinners, sometimes we put certain sins in different categories. We have really bad sins, really ugly sins. And it is true, there are certain things as we rebel against God's perfect plan, it really affects you and affects other people. I I get that. But sin, all sin, separates us from God. And there are certain things, especially in our culture right now, that we look at that God seems very clear about is not His plan. Like marriage. God's plan is one man and one woman to come together for life. That's his plan. But I'm pretty sure every one of you know folks with an alternative lifestyle. Folks that may be of the same gender have even married. And you maybe have even been asked to go to their weddings. And it puzzles some of you. No, 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 no. I, I, I don't think I could do that. I would be condoning. You know, I think we as a church have to think long and hard on how Jesus loved those that were not part of the kingdom, did not have our ethics, did not have our Bible, does not have any bent toward Obeying what God asks us to do. This shouts to me. Because the question that I often have to ask, how do I love the sinner and hate the sin? 
Because the truth is, many of us live lives, well, that repel people to Jesus rather than point people to Jesus. I hate it when either my reputation or the church's reputation or, or Christians are, oh, you know what? They're so judgmental. They're so persnickety. They're so unloving. You know, I, I just don't see Jesus that way. I don't. And I think that's one of the things that we as a church and, and we as a people have to listen to God well. We need how to respond with grace. We need how to encourage others. Now again, I'm not talking about those who profess Jesus. They're a whole different situation then. We are accountable to, well, help our brothers and sisters in the church to see clearly what the Bible has to say. I'm not saying that. I'm talking about those that don't know Jesus, and we put our expectations and God's, well, principles on them. I think we need to relook really at that. Bottom line is, we could go deeper. We could speculate what Jesus wrote and why he wrote it. Did the woman say more? Did she say less? What is Jesus actually saying? What happened to the woman after all this? But there's probably a good reason we don't have it. We can speculate. But one of the things that, as I was preparing this message, there was a song. A song that hit me deep. And a song I'd like to actually play for you. It's by Casting Crowns, and it's called, Who Am I? Let's focus up front.
and justice. There are times we don't feel so apart. But you are a holy God. And it only takes one act of rebellion to separate us. We thank you We thank you, God, that you sent your Son to die in our place. We know you loved us even while we were separated, even while we were dirty, and that he spread his arms and satisfied your wrath. God, we don't deserve that. But everyone who puts their faith in your Son as Savior have new life. It's because of the name of Jesus, the authority of Jesus that took our sin. 
and paid our debt. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.